Well, let's get into the teaching before I cry again. <laughs> we come this morning to our study of the 51st Psalm, where we've decided just to take a little bit more in-depth look at what might be the most famous psalm in all of the Bible. And I say it's famous because the noted preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that Psalm 51 should be called the sinner's guide. The sinner's guide because this in this psalm we see the evidences of how it is that a sinner might learn to return to the grace of his God. You see, at the very heart of this psalm is a confession of a broken man who had sinned in the most horrific way and now was praying with all of his heart that the consequences of his sin might not take the life of his newborn son. And it's in this way that Psalm 51 on this particular day might be called more aptly the desperate plea of a broken father. The desperate plea of a broken father because it's in this way that the proverbial sins of the father are now seen as being visited upon the lives of their children. So it's in this way that we're going to approach Psalm 51 on Father's Day. While perhaps maybe it's a more sober look than you might expect, because this is not just a celebration of fatherhood this morning, this is also a look at the consequences of fatherhood, the consequences. That's why I thought showing you Josiah's documentary on father would be an important introduction to our time, because it's just an honest look at what underlines the text that we have this morning. Now, if you were with us last time, Sounds like there's three of me in here, doesn't it? If, there were, if you were here with me last time, we spent a portion of the morning, just look at this idea of sins of the Father. And it appears not only in the Ten Commandments and Deuteronomy and Exodus and the book of Numbers and also in Jeremiah. And we looked at this idea of the sins of the fathers being linked to this idea that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Sins of the father, meaning that the children of those who sin, namely their fathers, are those who are going to not only inherit the seed of sin, the sin nature, if you will, but also have some certain sins that carry along with them, which might be called by some intergenerational consequences. So as we've already seen in the documentary, our culture is filled with constant evidences of these consequences through abuse of violence, abuse of alcohol, abuse of the sins of absenteeism. To say it succinctly, children may suffer on account of the sins committed by their forebearers as much as they might be blessed by them as well. Now, even though the Bible definitely teaches that each individual must take responsibility for his or her own sin, it also teaches that the influence of the Father can either inflict pain and hardship or blessing and restoration upon the children. And I bring this all before you this morning because this is at the very heart of the situation that David finds himself in in Psalm 51. Here in Psalm 51, we see a very gruesome dilemma for King David in that before his eyes, he has seen the dying of his son perishing for his own hideous sins of adultery and murder and deception and betrayal, sins that he himself have brought upon his own family. Though Psalm 51 is often seen and spoken of 
through the lens of David's response to his sin with Bathsheba, our study of the context of 2 Samuel 12 revealed to us that the superscription that precedes Psalm 51 was speaking to much more than just the act of adultery with David. It was speaking about the entire season of David's life that brought him to this confession and this need for repentance. In fact, according to the biblical history of this psalm, evidence biblically points to the fact that David wrote this song as a remembrance of the moment when he was lying face down on the ground begging Yahweh to spare his life so that the infant that had been born to him as a result of his infidelity would be spared. So this psalm was written after Nathan the prophet accused David of the hideous sin of lying to, with another man's wife and then having him covertly killed in battle to cover it up and then added the consequence of such horrific deeds would ultimately crush David's heart as a husband and as a father in this entire line of sons that would follow and manifest the consequence of this act. So if you weren't with us, just so you know, 2 Samuel 12, you can go look at it later, is going to tell us this, verse 10 and following. Nathan speaking to David, So now the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says Yahweh. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the son also that is born to you shall surely die. Remember, though David was always called the man after God's own heart, actually he failed as a father. He failed as a father. David's firstborn, Amnon, was a rapist. Absalom usurped David's throne and slept with his wives. David's fourthborn, Adonijah, Adonijah, usurped his brother, Solomon's throne, against the will of God revealed through David. And his seventhborn, Solomon, violated every law God made for a king. In addition to worshiping idols, Solomon, if you remember the story, violated every element of this. He, he multiplied horses for himself and sent people back to the Egypt to get horses and married the daughter of a Pharaoh. He forbidden to marry many Hebrew wives, but he married a thousand non-Jewish wives. He appears that Solomon not only never wrote out a copy of the law for himself as the law said he should, but he never even read it throughout his life, it seems. All that to say, just to give you perspective, and maybe that's shocking to you, but King David's dilemma in Psalm 51 had much more to do with his entire family than you might first have realized. Now, we spoke of this reality last time. Your sin, my sin, our sin has much more to do with life than just you. Let me say that again. David was living proof that your sin affects you more than just you. 
The consequence of your sin, as I said, is like a spider's web that sticks to anything and everything that attempts to draw near it, and it's a web as far-reaching and traps everything it touches. So David had all of this flash before his eyes when Nathan the prophet spoke to him. And David saw what he had done, and he refused. If you remember Psalm 32 that Pastor John just read this morning, for months and months and months and months and months, he, re- he refused to confess his sin. And now he realized that God was serious, and he allows the weight of his sin to be on his own house, on his own shoulders, and it drove him to write Psalm 51. Though the child would die, David believed that perhaps God might be merciful to him and reverse what he had enacted. And so this entire psalm is written before the child dies while he is still a week away from his death. And so David prays and prays and prays and prays, hoping that his prayer might reverse the consequence of his sin. Now, you know this is part three of the study of Psalm 51, and I tell you that Because what I first believed might be a three-part study of this psalm is becoming much more than that. There is just no way. Uh, Because I won't be teaching Psalm 51 again after today until after Sundays in July. And so that means there's going to be a six-week gap between what I preach now and when I'm in the pulpit again in August. And taking a six-week break from the momentum of this tremendous psalm means that I am going to have to extend this for a long time. (laughs) So instead of just attempting vainly to finish Psalm 51 today and because of the connections it has so clearly between this psalm and Father's Day, uh, I'm just going to give you one more of the seven points that one day we will glean at, we we will encounter, and the rest of those points will come in August. But I want to try to wrap this next point up for you in the blanket of seeing through the lens of David's prayer as a broken father. Now, if you remember, let me break this down for you, and then you can kind of keep it in your Bible for six weeks and then blow the dust off of it later. But if you remember, I broke down Psalm 51 into seven aspects concerning God's forgiveness and man's repentance that David's illustrating here in the way that he expresses himself in Psalm 51. These seven, seven areas of God's relationship to our repentance is this. God's compassion is our only ground for petition. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. We'll review that today. God's character is our primary reason for confession, verses 3 and 4, and I'll also address that today. God's commands are our fundamental incentive for conversion, verses 5 and 6. God's chastening is our singular means for purification, verses 7 and 8. God's creation is our only hope for restoration, verses 9 through 13. And two more, God's communion is our sole prospect for exaltation and his consecration, our ongoing plea for generations. And and again, I kind of fade off there because there's so much there I know for you to grasp. But we'll take this a little bit at a time. And again, we're going to be going through this together in August when we return. But just for today, just for today, I want to continue in the time that I have to give an emphasis to you about how David's failures and the sin and the consequences of his sin in his family drove this prayer as he examined his sin in light of all the effect that had happened to his son. Let me begin by saying this, and I think sometimes people are thrown by this, and I understand it. The legacy of fatherhood in the Bible is not exactly what you think. 
The legacy of fatherhood in the Bible is not exactly what you might think. In fact, when it comes to fatherhood in Scripture, the worst fathers outnumber the best fathers by far. Now, true, we have fathers like Job. We studied Job a few years ago. He is the quintessential example of a man who was considered great by his entire generation and who sacrificed every single morning for his sons and daughters just in case they had sinned. Not because they had sinned, but just in case. He's probably the greatest example, the greatest patriarch in the Old Testament in that he was faithful and steadfast and godly right up to the very, very end. But then it's sad to say that the best of fathers easily become outnumbered by the worst of fathers in the Bible. For instance, we have Eli. Eli, some have called the permissive father. 1 Samuel 2, verses 22 through 25. Listen as I read. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. The Lord desired to put them to death. And you might go, why? That doesn't seem like it's Eli's fault. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 2, 29. God gives us insight. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choice of every offering of my people Israel? They had honored the sons more than the offerings that God had instituted. 1 Samuel 3.13, For I have told him that I am about to judge this house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Eli did not have the internal permission, the, the need to correct. Maybe he thought he was going to lose the love of his children. If he did, maybe he thought that they would leave him. Whatever the reasons were, Eli failed. Samuel also was a failure as Eli. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 6. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba, His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. He resisted to do that. My sons should stay in control. Manasseh, we know that name, sacrificed his children to demons. For 2 Kings 21, 1 through 9, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations who the Lord disposed before the sons of Israel. 
who they dispossessed, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, and used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritualists. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Also, it says in Psalm 106, the same, that they mingled together these wicked practices, Psalm 106. Ahaz worshipped idols and sacrificed his children to demons, 2 Kings 16, 2-4. He speaks of it also in Ezekiel 16, 19-21. He said, My bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey which I fed you, you would offer before them for soothing aroma, so it happened. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. You're going to see more examples of this in 2 Kings 17, 16 as well. So I put this before you, and there's many, many other verses that I could speak to. But the, the thing is this. The unfortunate saying is true. If you fail to teach your son to obey his parents, the devil will teach him to rebel and break his parents' heart. If you fail to teach your son to select his companions, the devil will gladly choose them for him. If you fail to teach your son to control his body, the devil will teach him to give it over completely to lust. If you fail to teach your son to enjoy the marriage partner that God has given him, the devil will teach him to destroy the marriage. If you fail to teach your son to watch his words, the devil will fill his mouth with filth. If you fail to teach your son to purpose pursue work, the devil will make his laziness a tool of hell. If you fail to teach your son to manage his money, the devil will teach him to waste it on riotous living. And if you fail to teach your son to love his neighbor, the devil will gladly teach him to love only himself. So King David had many, many lessons to learn. But the moment before him in Psalm 51 would be the start of it all. This is the catalyst. This is the domino effect that started his entire life. Tragically, he would fail his son before he was ever born. Solomon failed the son that was born to him before he ever was born by the adultery and by the murder. But eventually it drove him to repentance. So let me just, with that in mind, with the heaviness of that on Father's Day on your mind, thank you very much, let me review first, Happy Father's Day, the point that we covered last time. The first thought that David has about God in this repentance prayer. Number one, God's compassion is our only ground for petition, and this is review. God's compassion is our only ground for petition. And you read that in verse 1 of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, I think that takes on a new weight, don't you? After all the things that we just talked about thus far, this has a massive amount of gravitas to it, a massive amount of weight. David is broken by the confrontation. Again, lying flat on his face before God, tears streaming down his face. 
knowing that his son is crying in the next room as a consequence of David's sin. And yet he prays for God's compassion. He prays for God's compassion in the midst of all this. And remember, I said earlier, 2 Samuel 12, 13, that Nathan the prophet had already told David, Yahweh has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So David already knew that the greatness of his sin was put away. So he will be forgiven. Forgiveness is going to happen. But it's interesting to note that in 2 Samuel 12, the verb also taken away your sin is translated as to pass on, to cross over, to pass by. The form of that is causative. In other words, to cause to pass over. So some translate it transferred and comment that the verb means more than just has put away. There's something else going on. It simply cannot mean forgotten. It must be atoned for. So if David himself is not going to die, the sin has to be transferred, atoned for, passed over to someone else. Now, if this analysis is true, some say it means that David may have understood that his sin was being transferred to the innocent child that this illicit union between David and Bathsheba had resulted in the death of this one. Death must be accomplished. Some actually would translate that portion as, has laid on another the consequences of your sin. And I pointed out that's from the handbook on 2 Samuel from the United Bible Societies. This is a massive truth, a truth that we must not You can't really pass over this. Regardless of the exactness of the statement, our sin has much more to do with others than you believe. It has much more to do. And it's such a crippling thought, and it's such a horrific thought, and it's such a terrifying thought. So here David is completely engulfed in the truth of his own sin. He's completely wrapped up in it. The feeling of the consequences of what he has done, touching the lives of those that are the closest to him, He cries out to Yahweh. And when he cries out to Yahweh, he cries out for the compassion of Yahweh. Blot out, take it as ink to blot out my tremendous sin. More than my sin being taken away, oh God, more than my life not having to die for what I've done, I need compassion on the deepest level to reverberate throughout my sinful life. I need to be made whole again. That was his first petition, which leads us to our second petition this morning, and really the last petition we'll have. God's character also, this is the next aspect, the second aspect of this prayer about God's person that ties together his forgiveness with man's repentance. Not only do we remember that God himself is the one to whom compassion must be gained from. But number two, God's character is our primary reason for confession. Really think about that. God's character, who he is, is our primary reason for confession. And let me show you where I get that. Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Now, let me draw your attention to that phrase, I know. 
Verse 3, for I know, David knew his transgressions. He knew it intellectually, he knew it physically. As you remember from our last study of Psalm 32, again it echoes the seriousness of what he remembers. David's sin had captured his skin. David's sin had wrapped its way around his body like a spiritual bow constrictor, squeezing him and depleting him, and he felt it, and he drained him, and he kept that going for over a year. The fact that David was dying was evident to him. It was evident to the people in his court. It was evident to Bathsheba. The fact that he could not see his reflection without remembering his sin was literally killing him. It was, verse 3, ever before him, ever before him. It was inescapable. This is the product of sin, the consequence, first and foremost, he had an eating away of his own body, a literal dying before him. It was self-evident. Before he confessed it, he knew it. Now, there must have been a time where he didn't know it. We've talked about this before. There must have been a time where he had, as as unbelievers do in the book of Romans, when it says that they repress the truth and unrighteousness. They know that there's a God, but they deny him. David knew his sin. It was clear, and yet he denied it. He had done just what unbelievers had done. The blood of Uriah was not soaked into his clothes, so it wasn't as if he could see it. The whispers of seeing Bathsheba in his royal chambers were no longer being heard because now she was his wife. The cries of his newborn were cries of hunger and life. They were not cries of pain and of death. So for a while, David didn't let himself know that he had sinned. But eventually, eventually, he couldn't help himself but see sin standing before him like a ghost, like, like, like a shadow that followed him everywhere he went. Sin was evident, and he could not escape it. But something happened, something gloriously happened to David, something that had to be honestly, divinely orchestrated. You have people in your life and you wonder what's wrong. You don't understand why they have not the intellect to understand the Bible. And you're wondering why it is that they're just not smart enough or they've been around the church for all these years. Because, because repentance must be granted by God. It cannot be intellectually induced if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you know this, and we can go to it a little later. There's a sorrow that leads to repentance, and there's a sorrow that leads to death. You can be sad. You can be acknowledging the fact that there was a sin, but for real repentance to happen, it must be divinely orchestrated. So namely, he started to see his own sin, how? In contrast to the character of God. And this is essential. David was given the opportunity to see sin, but he was given the opportunity to see sin in contrast to God's character. Somehow, some way, this very prideful, very dangerous man, deceitful man, caught a glimpse of God, and so in the glimpse of God, he started to see himself. And I'm not saying he saw God physically. Uh, I'm not saying that He saw Yahweh like Moses did and saw the train of Yahweh and the glory of Yahweh as he passed by. 
David saw Yahweh through what he understood in the writings, the same way that you and I see God through what he has manifested in the word. We know that David had the Torah. We know that because it was given to him in Deuteronomy 17. We know that kings were told to write their own copy of the Torah, as I told you Solomon did not do. So he had known the scripture, written the scripture, knew the revelation of God, knew who God's character, what God's character was. And so he had those words to carry around with him. So for almost, for a time at least, for nine months plus, some theologians say a year, into his sin, after Nathan's confrontation, 2 Samuel 12, he realized that he had done evil, he says, in Yahweh's sight. At first, it seems as almost he's giving in to that. Well, I've done evil in your sight. I haven't done evil in my sight. That's what it sounds like at first. But that's not what the connotation is in in Psalm 51. He realized what he was in front of God. He's going to mention that again in verse 4. But before we even get to David's sin becoming evident to his own soul, I want to ask the question, when? When was he told? When was he told? That this, or when did this effect happen in his sin? And it happened when he was told that his family would be affected. If you go back to 2 Samuel 12, it was personal. It was beyond his sin as a king. It was beyond what he had done to Israel. It was about his sin as a father. Go ahead and turn there because I can hear people turning there anyway. So when did he have this revelation that he had sinned against God? Well, let's go back to the text. Nathan speaks to him. And in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? Again, Nathan saying, You have done evil in God's sight. You have struck down the Huriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the sons Ammon. So now, again, David has not responded yet. The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. What happens next? Then David says to Nathan, I have sinned before Yahweh. I heard what had happened. You've caught me, but you directed it toward my household, the ramifications of my sin to my own family. And he confessed, I have sinned before Yahweh. And then after that confession, Nathan said, yeah, Yahweh has taken away your sin. You shall not die. But because this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. The son that is born to you shall surely die. Then the fracture is compounded. And then after he confesses his sin, when Nathan says, oh yes, the child shall die, that strikes deep. That cut him to the core. Maybe more than his sins against the nation, maybe more than his sins against Uriah. Maybe it was that deep realization that my sin has trickled down, listen fathers, into my family. That's what opened his eyes. That's when sin becomes sinful. 
Sometimes the sinfulness of sin is not so evident. You know that. Sometimes you go, I'm sinning, or I've sinned. I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry about that sin that I kind of knew I was going to do, but I did it anyway. I'm sorry now. Sometimes sinfulness doesn't seem sinful. But after the physical deterioration of his body met the spiritual devastation of his soul, and specifically in relation to his failure as a father, David's sin was following him like a criminal at night, at first unnoticed and finally right before him in full attack mode. But the core of all of this was David's realization concerning Yahweh's character. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Because he saw he had sinned against God. Verse 4, against you. Against you. David's sin was ever before him, for David's God was ever before him. David's failure was not because he didn't consider how he usurped the role as king to seduce Bathsheba. David's failure was not before him because he didn't consider her body as belonging to her husband and that adultery was theft. David's failure wasn't because he used his privilege as king to make others his assassins or even because he remembered the commandment that says murder is sin. No, David's failure, his sin, his transgressions were not a direct result of all the multiplicity of the ramifications associated with his sin, though all of those things are still true. David's sin was made evident because his sin was against his Father in heaven. There is a story in the New Testament, you know it very well, called the prodigal son. And some people have also titled that same story, The Prodigal of the Forgiving Father, in Luke 15. I want you to go there with me, Luke 15. And I want you to see something very, very important in the lesson that Jesus teaches in Luke 15. I don't know if you know this, but our pastor has preached a sermon about this years ago. He called it The Tale of Two Sons. But it's also focused on the forgiving father. Let me begin reading from verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate, living recklessly. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent them into his field to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But then, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will rise up 
and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he rose up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come alive again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Do you see the point? The realization in this story, which was a story that the Lord Jesus just made up, to, to picture this, that he came to the realization he had sinned against his father. He came to the realization that everything he had done, the, seek, the, the satisfaction that he had sought was all as a horrible backdrop to the fact that he had sinned against the one who created him. David, as a son, sinned against his father. And that sin against his father crushed him. And that crushing happened to him because he had crushed his son as well. So the story of Psalm 51 is a story for fathers. It's a story that we're going to look at much more in detail. Much more time will be given in August. But at that time, I want you to remember that the ramifications of sin can so weight you down, but still you confess nothing. But until you see your sin against God and the ramifications of what it has done to those that you love because of your lust and your selfishness and your ambition, God will tend to not open your eyes, lead you to the knowledge of the truth, grant you repentance, and forgive. This is the story of Psalm 51. Let's pray. Father, on this Father's Day, we come completely celebratory in stories like the prodigal son. For that's how we see you, O God, the Father who is always forgiving, who is waiting for his son from afar, who has been waiting and waiting and waiting for the return and then runs without accusation or finger-pointing and wraps his arms around him and kisses him with the kisses of love. And yet, Father, we also see in Psalm 51 the same dilemma, and yet we see not you yet kissing David, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 32, but we see his desire to come before your feet and to acknowledge the depth of his sin knowing that you are good and gracious. And he could only do that. We can only do that because of your mercy, because of your compassion, and because of your character. Father, give us wisdom as we think through these things. And let us all be very, very thankful for not only the Father that we have in heaven, but the fathers that we have all been given 
to a greater or lesser degree that you have allowed us to learn from and grow from and even has allowed us to be here today. Bless this day and return us back together next Lord's Day, all with the same mind focused on Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.